There's your stinger <laughs> or your trailer. <laughs> no, because I think the thing that we've got to discuss, the important thing is mm. that this, this episode is yes. episode 52. This is our yearly anniversary. Okay, I can deal with that. We, 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 well, I think it's more important that we do the one-year anniversary episode together because we did, we did episode one. one to Place me with your brother and your wife and your internet friends and your American nurse friends. I've not replaced you. We've, we've expanded the range. I'm not bitter. No. Well, <laughs> if you remember, before we recorded episode one about our good friend Granville. Oh, yeah. Um, we recorded an Edward the Confessor episode that ended up being so long. Oh, it got split into three parts. Oh, it got split into one. three parts. Well, to celebrate one year, we have another quite long episode. Um, but we're not going to split this one. We're going to no, put it no. out in all of its glory. One give the pe- massive thing. Give the people what they want. I bet you've been getting non-stop emails saying that we just don't hear enough of Matt and, and his wacky views on history. No, what they've been saying is we, we like the, the tight format that you've introduced to 45 <laughs> minutes, but we'd, we'd rather have much longer segues that don't go anywhere and kind of peter out. So that's what we're going for. <clears throat> I resent the implication that my stories don't go anywhere. They might not go to places you want to go, <laughs> but there is a destination. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough. Down depression cul-de-sac. <laughs> Look, if, if people didn't want to be depressed, they should get off their asses and make the world a better place. I thought you. I honestly thought you were going to say, get off their asses and make their own podcast. But no, don't do that. Listen to this one. Yeah, yeah. Well, why would you want to do that? Our podcast is literally all you need. It's got all the answers. We're going to get there eventually. Like, yeah, yeah, that's just, true. Just keep, just keep listening. Eventually, something relevant will happen. <laughs> hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... This story takes place in the Georgian era, but more specifically on the 11th of May, 1812. Ooh. And your three words. The last three words we're ever doing. (laughs) They're getting retired. Uh, Fair enough. Mutiny. Yes. Revolution. Yes. Murder. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I thought that would be the kind of words that get you excited and ready to go. I like 18... Is it, it's not the War of 1812, is it? No, no. Oh, good. It's not the War of 1812. Because, like, you know, that, that one's always been a bit of a funny one. It's like, you know, I'd, be, I'd feel compelled to make lots of jokes at the Americans' expense, like, and making out like the British Empire was really good. But, it, you know, the Canadians will beat anyone up, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> Well, no. Pound for pound, the deadliest nation on earth by far. I'm, I'm not going to say that we're going to stay in Britain for the entire story. but I wouldn't have expected it to. Anything based in Britain in 1812 is a global story. We were sort of... It was the, the, the golden age of cocking about in places we shouldn't have been cocking about in. Oh, there's definitely some of that. <laughs> oh, so much cocking. But we'll get to it because this story, it concentrates on two men. One called Spencer and mm. one called John. And the circumstances that led to their one and only meeting. Mm, so, interesting. We'll start with Spencer. Because mm-hmm. Spencer Percival was born as the son of an earl on November 1st, 1762. Mm-hmm. Which sounds like it would mean he never had to work a day in his life. You I'm the son so. of an earl. I mean, there's only like seven earls and they're all mm-hmm. pretty... I mean, they were all 
pretty landed. So, Well, unfortunately for Spencer, he was the second son of the ah. second marriage, um, <laughs> meaning that there were four male heirs ahead of him. Yeah. So he was, he was the son of an earl, but he was not the favoured son of the earl. Let's put it that way. Yeah, the earl had stopped caring long ago. I've got an heir, a spare, a spare, spare, a spare, 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 and Spencer. <laughs> well, just, just as a very sort of concrete example of the importance of proximity to the title of earl, um, Spencer and his oldest brother Charles, who mm. by this point was known as Lord Arden because the titles had started rolling for Charles. <laughs> of course. They ended up dating... I've got so many titles, I'm just going to give some to my son. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, it's the it's the ultimate. I didn't get your birthday present gift. If you're an earl, oh, <laughs> you can be part of the estate. You can uh, be lord of that. Lord of Arden. There you go. Arden being a tiny village, as you know, with five people and two cows. But still, well, enough to get you a seat in the House of Lords, probably. Definitely, I, Charles did have a seat in the House of Lords. Oh, of course he did. Um, but Charles, Lord Arden, hmm. and Spencer. Spencer. Lord of nothing. <laughs> Lord of absolutely nothing. They started dating a pair of sisters, Amazing. Margareta and Jane. <laughs> Have a guess which one Spencer was dating. Jane. It was Jane. The father of the two women, Sir Thomas Spencer Wilson. <laughs> I know. Sorry. If he'd named his kid after himself, it could have been Spencer Spencer. <laughs> Like Neville, Neville. Uh, well, uh. he immediately agreed to let Lord Arden marry Margareta. But in spite of a Harrow and Cambridge education, a steady career as a lawyer that was supplementing a £200 allowance. Harrow. <laughs> and a £200 al- allowance was approximately twenty-seven grand in today's money. So before any of Spencer's money from being a lawyer came through, he had a base rate of twenty-seven grand. So basically he was... Buy a house and cock about rich, but not like mega mega rich. That's pretty much. He was he was in that kind of, I'm rich enough that I don't have to struggle too hard. Yeah. Um, but, but if I want any kind of, I mean, jokes, jokes, but like, if I want any kind of relative quality, as in to live in the world that which I've become accustomed to through my birth, I'm going to have to slog it. Yeah, that's that's the level of rich Spencer was, where it was an obligation. Yeah. To try and keep up appearances, but. Sir Thomas Spencer Wilson, despite, you know, sharing a bit of his name. Yeah. Um, he told Spencer Percival to sling his hook, as he was definitely not worthy. Amazing. So, and, the, uh, and, and presumably because he was the fourth son, his pa, the Earl, was just like, yes, you aren't worthy. Yeah, but that's got to <laughs> this have been, isn't an insult to my family because you are actually crap, Spencer. It's got to have been an awkward moment, at, you know, at Charles's and Margarita's wedding where <laughs> there's Spencer sat on one side and there's Jane sat on the other side and just people keep looking at them and just shaking their heads. Just like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> Did they actually like each other, though? Oh, yeah, they loved each other. Oh, that's actually a shame, like... Well, it would have been a shame, but Spencer Percival was, above all else, stubborn. And when Jane turned 21, the Mm. two of them eloped. Jane didn't even have time to change out of her riding clothes for the ceremony. (laughs) The two of them then moved into a... Or maybe he just had a thing for jodhpurs. Well, all I know is she was wearing them. I assumed it was because she'd uh, she'd got the off a horse and then was like, right, let's do this before Daddy finds me. They they got there in plenty of time and Spencer was like, no, babe. Leave them on. (laughs) 
Can I take off the riding hat? No. <laughs> Never. <laughs> I'm your husband now. <laughs> and it's 1790 whatever, so you have to do exactly what I say. <laughs> well, they were, relatively speaking, for their families, poor. And they yeah. had to move into a flat above a carpet shop to begin building their life together. Disgusting. Only slightly helped by the fact that Sir Thomas decided to accept the marriage after all. Hmm. And he provided some financial support. But did Spencer's dad cut them off? No, no, no. He was still paying the £200 allowance. So when I say they had to stop building a life together, they had her allowance and his allowance. So basically they started at the level of, right, well, we've got two normal people's salaries. Let's see what we can do with this plus whatever else we can get. Yeah, we've got two normal people's <laughs> salaries and Spencer's working as a lawyer with lots of, you know, Harrow and Oxford connections. Jesus Christ. <sighs> Maybe we However can will we struggle through <laughs> Was this flat above a carpet? What was this, like, the carpet emporium? It's, it's carpet emporium spread over three acres with a single flat above it. No, I, th- I believe it was just in the centre of London. So it's, like, desirable oh, right. because he was, you know, going to the law courts. And so, he had his chambers. As far as I could tell with the two biography, uh, the two sort of books about this I read, it was it was held up as a big thing, like, well, he started above a carpet shop. It's like, no, he wasn't born there. He was born on a country estate into a world of privilege. <laughs> he chose to go to the carpet shop. Knowing full well he I'm wouldn't sorry. be staying above the carpet shop. Yeah, I just can't get this image of this like flat of this carpet shop being like palatial luxury. <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah, did I mention that they provided massive, carpets for the palace floors. of Versailles? <laughs> yeah. Glass everywhere, light, urchins on tap to run errands. That's that's Spencer Percival's starting life, okay? Yeah. A bit a bit of adversity, but Well, yeah. yeah. Only adversity in terms of, like, getting what he wants. No adversity in terms of, like, if I don't steal this loaf of bread, I will actually die. So let's turn to John Bellingham. Hmm. John was born seven years after Spencer Percival in 1796. Hmm. The exact date is not known, as he was not anywhere near being in line to a title. (laughs) Poor bugger. John's father was a land surveyor who enjoyed painting miniature portraits on the side. But the precision that both his job and his hobby required apparently became too much for him, and he was sent to St Luke's Asylum when John was ten. The poor bugger probably just had some relatively treatable, as we understand it, mental illness. Like. Oh, very probably. But I think that the, the level of accuracy and perfection needed in both <laughs> his job and his hobby... We're talking about an obsessive-compulsive. Possibly. Yeah. Well, either way, the mad doctors at St Luke's toiled for a year but they could not cure whatever brand of mental illness he was sporting. So he decided instead to give him several more and locked him in the darkness and hit him with hammers. No. Do you know what? After a year, they went, meh, uh, and they sent him back home. <laughs> you're, you're all right, mate. <laughs> Just sane enough for England. The fact that they sent him back home uh, it makes it, you know, you've got, you've got to read into that, that he thought it was safe. Yeah. To send him back home, which suggests... Oh, they didn't care. Well, it suggests a depressive <laughs> illness rather than a psychotic one. Yes. Either way, he wasn't back at home long before mm. he abruptly died, at mm. likely as a result mm. of suicide. <sighs> and it was at this point, after having mm. his mad dad come home and kill himself, that John was said to have become perverse and troublesome. <laughs> oh no how dare someone be emotionally affected by that what a weakling well yeah i mean he should have just stiff up it like the rest of society was yeah yeah that worked out so well for us there's definitely definitely no perversions and oddness in the in the stiff up lip brigade is there 
So Boris. <laughs> none of it was proved. <laughs> Conclusively. Yeah, because he owns all the fucking journalists, doesn't he? Anyway, never mind. <laughs> well, John and his mother, they may have ended up destitute and in a workhouse, but they were supported for a couple of years by a kindly uncle before mm. John was offered, through the strings the uncle had pulled, I'm pretty sure, mm. an apprenticeship to a jeweller called Mr. Love. Oh, that's, that's actually a pretty good trade for the time. Well, he, could have been, he could have made a pretty big fortune if he'd been like, any good at it. Of well, course, I'm assuming this turns out horribly for him. But... Well, he was apprenticed at the age of 14, so with a standard seven-year term of indentured servitude, or an yeah. apprenticeship, uh, this will give... <laughs> I don't think that's changed much. I think that's still how they do it today, isn't it? <laughs> you work for £20 a month or something. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, at the other end of it, he would be 21 and he would have very desirable skills in a very profitable trade. So yeah. it seems like it, as much as indentured servitude can be a fair exchange, this feels like it is. And he's Mr. Love. Yeah, how bad can he, he be? He only makes engagement rings. <laughs> that's that's how much Mr Love cares And little collars for dogs Yeah, little twee ones with diamantes on them Just to say you know, that you really Silver. love Mr Snuffles Silver bells <laughs> Unfortunately <laughs> Yes, Mr Love was a psychopath <laughs> Well, no, Mr Love, as far as I know, was beyond reproach This isn't a fault on Mr Love's part You lie, you like to cut the toes off dogs and feed them to puppies and then feed the puppies to cats and then drown the cats. <laughs> Either John found this weird, weird hobby that Mr. Love had and was disgusted. He didn't like bling or he didn't want to wait that long. He didn't like bling. <laughs> he got to one look around and went, nah, dog, this ain't for me. I ain't materialistic and shit. <laughs> he just, he's understated. He's the king of understatement, is John. But anyway, he decided that he could start making proper money, like mm. non-indentured servitude money. That is to say, money, hmm. uh, at the age of 16. And he decided he'd do this by running away to sea. Well, it, it sounds like he lacked foresight, hmm. but he was 16. So, What are you talking about? In every story we've covered this year where someone's run away to sea, hmm. it has gone perfectly. <laughs> it's never ended in slavery, horror and death. Yes. Any story we've done that's covered the sea, beautiful. Yeah. And he did. He managed to get a position on an East India Company ship called the Hartwell. It was oh, bound yeah. for China. Uh, excitingly but opium time yeah they'd only got as far as the coast of west africa when some of the lower down officers mm. such as john billingham who <laughs> amazingly was recorded as having been a midshipman on the voyage which is the lowest class of officer but it's an officer, officer nonetheless yeah. a 16 year old about him. who's two years into uh you know a, jewel a jewelry making. apprentice <laughs> that's officer material let's maybe, go maybe he could read <laughs> Like, that's not a joke. Like maybe he could read. <laughs> it, it might have been as simple as that. They, they asked him to make his mark, and he actually signed his name. And they went, "Oh, <laughs> oh an educated man." <laughs> you need to go into the queue on the left, sir. <laughs> anyway, the lower down officers, including John, uh, they decided to engage in a spot of mutiny. <laughs> a spot of let's mutiny for a few hours. See how it goes. The yeah. West African coast, which which contains the skeleton coast. Oh, I was just about to yeah, say because Namibia. there's that big stretch of. <laughs> Absolutely bugger all. So that's yeah. the place at which you want to you <laughs> mutiny. The place even the Bushmen, the people who are the only people who still live off the land, don't go. <laughs> it's like, that is certain death. Within sight of that, they went, now, lads, now's the time. I, feel, I can't tell if he's smart or not. There's so many people we've done these podcasts about, and it's like, you're either a genius or an idiot, and I cannot tell. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't give you any more steer because we don't know which side John was on in the fighting. 
History doesn't record it. (laughs) What is reported is that the captain and his loyal officers, possibly Mm. containing John, Mm. uh, eventually restored order. However, they had been too distracted to keep track of where the ship was heading and ended up hitting the Cape Verde Islands, which are Mm. about 385 miles from the nearest significant landmass. So they literally hit a needle in a haystack. <laughs> the ship sank, but all the crew managed to survive. So it must have been a half-hearted mutiny. I mean, if no one died. If you have a mutiny and no one dies. <laughs> yeah, I feel like maybe it was recorded as mutiny to spare the captain's blushes that they were all just being like, you're a shit captain, I don't like you. <laughs> he went to his room to sulk and like, we need some, we, seriously, we need, we need a direction, captain. No! <laughs> no, I've got all the maps. I'm the only one who can read them. You think I'm so rubbish? <laughs> Go on, let's see how good you do, uh, Captain. <laughs> what? Oh. We've, we've hit, we've, we've hit a thing. There's nothing out here. What could? Oh, okay, Verdi. <laughs> oh, you idiots! You poor stupid you, idiots. Do we know anything about Cape Verde? Are they particularly barren islands? Or? Well, they all got picked up because no one died. So I'm guessing there was at least trading posts there. Yeah, it, I'm gonna, it I'm wasn't gonna, like complete desolation. This was. I'm, I'm Google Cape Verde. It, well, now it's a lovely destination if you want to go on oh, holiday. Oh, yeah, it's a holiday place, mm. yeah. Founding Meadow, it's a Portuguese colony. It's nowhere near Namibia. You lied to me. No, it's 385 miles away from the west coast of Africa. Yeah, but from the nice part of the west coast. It's 335 miles away from Nigeria and stuff. Look, I don't know. <laughs> Geography's never been my thing. <laughs> Only history. Only history. <laughs> Fair enough. Since the 90s, it's been a representative democracy. Good on you, Kate Verdi. Before that, it was a colony until 1975. Wow. And we yeah. get shit for our empire. We do. But Anyway, you know. sorry, carry on. <laughs> uh, John survived both the mutiny, because yes. no one died, and the sinking <laughs> of the ship, again, because no one died. And he yeah. returned to London and decided to try his hand at the admin side of shipping, uh, rather than the shipping side of shipping, becoming a clerk for a London trading company, before eventually setting up on his own as a merchant broker in Liverpool in the first years of the 19th century. So we're in 1800 and 1801. Where was he actually from? Was he, was he from London? I have no idea. I was going to say, because there's something about him that just strikes me as Scouse. I'm well, sorry. I don't, think, I don't think he was originally um, Scouse. But yeah, so that was the start that John, John had, mm-hmm. as opposed to Spencer. Um, and we'll go back to Spencer, because they've both managed to find a career now. Uh, by the time John was setting up as an independent trader, Spencer Percival had not only become an MP, but then, mm. you know, he was relatively rich, so they basically handed him yeah. out like toffees. But yeah, he'd he's also... A, he's a rich lawyer and a lord's son. That's like... <laughs> well, rich lawyer, and a lord's, uh, rich lawyer and a lord's son. Of course, he was also going to become attorney general. Oh, yeah, of course. This was in part because he was a good lawyer, but also mm. in part because he shared the views of King George III on two important matters. Well, George the Third, hmm. the the Mary. No, that's George the Fourth. Wait, George the Third was the mad one. This could George be great. What, is, was what was it? Yeah. <laughs> so the two things he he agreed with Mad King George on. Firstly, that Catholics should not be given emancipation. Damn right. And secondly, that hats could be drunk as a, as, a, as a refreshing beverage. Because <laughs> since since the downfall of the Stuart monarchy, various restrictions have been placed on Catholics, including laws that disbarred them from holding political office. Uh, although there was growing public sympathy for the idea of removing restrictions on Catholics, both the King and Spencer, who was a committed Anglican, believed they should remain in place. So they agreed on that. Yeah, yeah. no damn papists in the 
post office. Yeah, god damn it. <laughs> and the second point on which they agreed was the necessity to beat Napoleon. Well, I mean, that's just right, every right-thinking individual. Surely. Uh, while King George's reason for not wanting revolutionary republican ideas spreading across Europe was pretty self-explanatory, let's be yeah. fair, uh, Spencer Percival's reasoning, a bit more convoluted. Go on. Spencer would often consult the Bible in regards to his political decisions. Oh, and he God. decided that Napoleon, he was not just an emperor. Yeah. He was also part of a prophecy. Oh, God. He, did he think Napoleon was the Antichrist? No, no. It's better than that. His reading oh, really? <laughs> of certain passages led him to believe that Napoleon was a necessary evil that would stamp out the false religion of Catholicism on the continent before the true Anglican faith would defeat him and fill the vacuum that he created. <laughs> right. He wanted to game Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. Napoleon was going to take over France and Spain and Portugal and all these kind of Catholic-leaning countries. Then Install his rationalist, anti-religious... Yeah, and then the Brits will come in and go, well, we're going to give you religion back, but sensible British religion. <laughs> no gold, <laughs> yeah. but drinking. <laughs> yeah. Sensible British religion. <laughs> this would lead, though, to Spencer Percival prioritising the continued continental war above practically all other things, including rising taxes, increased levels of poverty, and most significantly for him personally, a more hostile trading environment for the British. Oh, my God. Is he responsible for the Corn Laws? Uh, no, this is this is just before the Corn Laws. Yeah, but like, didn't the Corn Laws arise because of that hostile trading environment? Yes. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, he was totally responsible for the Corn Laws. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. What a, what a, Basically, right. trying to strangle British finances, Napoleon embarked on a policy of pressuring other European countries to stop trading with the UK. Mm. And given that the man was invincible in battle, had a giant army and not afraid to use it, People that worked really yeah. well. <laughs> uh, and once war was officially declared in May 1803, the situation was so dire that many traders had to seek out alternative trade routes that avoided the sphere of Napoleonic influence. So basically... Europe. <laughs> you better avoid Europe for a while. And or, Canada. <laughs> or most most of Europe for a while. <laughs> Amazing. One such trader, of course... Do you know, do you know my reasons for hating Napoleon? Oh, go on then. Um, he was described as the most competent individual who ever lived and like loved it and reveled in it, and I find that hot, too arrogant. <laughs> Wait a minute. Surely the most competent individual who ever lived was Alexander the Great. Uh, maybe. I mean... Possibly. Or Bear Grylls. <laughs> He's Bear pretty Grylls. competent. <laughs> Bear Grylls hasn't even conquered, like, a town. But he could, on his Prove own. Prove it. Prove it. I'm right he, to him. We'll get him to... No, he's got no proof. You he name a town, proof. I will ask Bear Grylls to conquer it. Swindon. Swindon, right. We're, we're making this happen. I mean, to be honest, that, that'd be for the good of Swindon. And then everybody, if it was just wiped off the map. <laughs> but if we're, t if we're talking about people who were influenced by Spencer's trading policy of... Well, oh, yeah. Well, screw you. Our pal John, yeah. Yeah, who um, he'd accompanied a freighter from Liverpool to the Russian port of Archangel on the northwest coast of Russia in 1804. Oh, God, I bet that was absolutely horrible back in those days. Well, <laughs> Just disgusting. There were some problems with uh, the port of Archangel, <laughs> chief amongst them the fact that it was only accessible for five months of the year before the sea was frozen and yeah. you couldn't move in and out. <laughs> Because Full on little ice age at yeah. the time, wasn't it? Getting to it involved <laughs> travelling around the top of the Nordic countries. And oh. such was the harshness of the climate that even in summer, that was a pretty terrible 
voyage to have to make. Mm. Um, so naturally, he decided to take his new wife and child with him on the journey. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm revising my opinion down from I can't tell if you're stupid or a genius to you're probably quite stupid. But they were forced uh, into these trading routes because... They couldn't it, go to Greece or whatever. Yeah, yeah the harshness <laughs> of doing it, so long as you got to Archangel uh, and got out within the window, so you mm. dropped off the, the um, sort of the goods and then you picked up the raw materials and headed back, you could make money to keep going with the idea that eventually the war will end and I'll be able to just ship things to Calais, you know, but this was this was those dire, I just need to do anything to keep my business afloat through the bad times kind of trip. Yeah. He sorted the paperwork to get the shipment unloaded at Archangel and for the raw goods to be bought, ready for the return leg to the UK, mm. and everything seemed to be going well. Unfortunately, uh, the mayor of Archangel, who had the very Russian name of Vasily Popov... Oh, he's going to do something classically Russian, isn't he? What would you say is classically Russian? Well, you know, as far as our stereotype of them goes, just like cartoonishly evil while drinking vodka. <laughs> well, he was in a dispute with an English insurer, Lloyds of London. Mm. Uh, regard- the it's the, the mayor said he was in a dispute with insurance, with the concept of insurance. <laughs> he was. Uh, it was regarding the sinking of a ship he co-owned, which was called the Seju. Mm. Uh, Lloyds were refusing to pay out as they had received an anonymous letter stating the ship had not sunk with lots of expensive cargo, but instead had been renamed and was still very much being used to make profits. Right. So yeah. Like, so he's 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 definitely definitely Russian. He's got a he's got a comedy Russian name. He he he's acting like a mafia boss. He's he's having trouble with an insurance agency. Oh, he's not even started with his ma- with his mob boss kind of <laughs> tactics yet. Don't yeah, you know? I, I I called it right. I, I'm sorry. There's a reason some of these stereotypes exist. <laughs> I'm sorry, Russia. Stop acting like cartoon bad guys, and I'll stop believing it. <laughs> well, Vasily, he decided that the letter, the anonymous letter must hmm. must have come from John. <laughs> and he arrested him for non-payment of a debt that may or may not have actually existed. Oh, my God. This prevented John from loading his ship with fresh cargo and, as the sea had iced over for the winter, Stuck him in forced him to plan for a return journey to the UK through Central Europe, Ugh. over land, with his wife and child during the Napoleonic War. And the Russian winter. Yeah, but the Russian winter is purely incidental in this. It's never harmed anyone, really. <laughs> yes. We don't call it General Winter or anything. <laughs> the most reliable soldier in Russia's arsenal. <laughs> but when John tried to leave, he was arrested, so he didn't have to face the Russian winter. Oh, and there Christ. followed two years of detention and legal wrangling before he was finally able to join his wife and son in St. Petersburg in 1805. My God. And while I totally get that this is extortion... And there seems to be a lot of bribery and a lot of stuff going on. I kind of have a little bit of sympathy for Vasily and the people of Archangel. Why? Because they live in such a horrible place that they were bound to become horrible people. No, they live in a horrible place, true. But suddenly, due to a load of events on the main coast of Europe, a load of stuff that they had nothing to do with, suddenly they are one of the few ports that the British can trade with. In so Europe. There's, there's loads of English people just turning yeah, up. <laughs> but they know that this ain't going to last. That at some point, either Napoleon's going to win and take over England, and mm. that's it, trade's open yeah. again, or the British are going to win uh, and Napoleon's going to be defeated and trade opens again. So they've got to make as much money as they can. Just basically tourist season. For yeah, they, they've down. got to go for it. 
extort, <laughs> lie, swindle, no, insurance no, 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 fraud. No, 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 no. The, 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 only, the only thing that way, because that's how Russians think, apparently. <laughs> that's how Vasily thought. <laughs> and unfortunately, he was the mayor of a town. No, that apparently, sorry. everyone I'm sorry. thought the same. I, I'm, going, I'm going back, like... I understand that the Russians have that proverb and then things got worse, but there's just something uniquely bleak about that country. Like like everyone who ever got into power was corrupt and horrible. You got the odd you got the odd like really really competent one like Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, and then everybody else was just horribly venal and corrupt and disgusting. It's just it's just like a never-ending story of of just awfulness. Well, either way, <laughs> I'm giving Vasily a bit of the benefit of the doubt here because you know, a couple of years after the Napoleonic Wars are done and he is now no longer able to pull any of this. He's back to running Archangel on the north coast of Russia where mm. no one goes and, yeah. you know, the the population boom that he's currently presiding over has just petered out as everyone moves to the bright lights of St. Petersburg. Yeah, he's just waiting for the gulags to start in 150 years' time. So John's John's been affected by this, but... He's been allowed to leave. He's in St. Petersburg. He can make his way home. With no cargo, no ship. (laughs) No, no, no. He's still got funds. So he he can go back and, you know, chalk it off and say, well... I feel like he shouldn't have to. Is that ice in the background? Yeah, sorry. My wife's making a drink. No, I'm just... I'm impressed that I guessed it. Yeah, well done. Inexplicably, though... Rather than get out of Russia as soon as possible, mm. because it I mean, was obviously not a good place for him to be, <laughs> John Bellingham decided to try and have the Governor General of Archangel impeached by appealing to the Imperial Senate, oh, based Jesus. on the fact that he felt his case had been mishandled. Oh my God. <laughs> and everyone just looked at him. <laughs> okay, where is bribe? <laughs> Bribe? <laughs> yeah, bribe. You bribe us, you get what you want. <laughs> Predictably, he was arrested again. Oh, my God. brought before the High Court in St. Petersburg. For he... wasting their time and not well, paying enough bribes. No, no. They just decided that this debt that may or may not have existed, for this Englishman, it definitely existed. <laughs> and he was confined until he had paid his debt. Oh, my God. This was essentially a life sentence because John couldn't get the funds while in captivity. He couldn't liquidate his assets while in captivity in order to raise the cash. Unbelievable. Uh, And John began appealing to the British authorities for help. (laughs) However, the ambassador ambassador at the time, Lord Gower, responded that he couldn't interfere in what was essentially a civil matter between a businessman and another businessman. Oh, my God. Sort of about as useful as the modern British uh, government when it comes to foreign affairs. <laughs> well, I mean, fr- from from the, his point of view, Lord Gowrie's probably like, but so you're saying they let you go? Yes. And you went back and told them they were corrupt? Yes, I did. And now you're in prison? Yes. <laughs> Do you know what country you're in? <laughs> you've, you've dealt with these people before? Yes, yes, we've made many voyages. Then I, I don't understand you, John. I'm sorry. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Yeah, he reminds me of a scouser. <laughs> so what John decided to do was contact everyone in both countries. He just started an aggressive campaign of being a bit of an annoyance. <laughs> writing lots of letters from his horrible Russian jail cell. Yeah, basi- basically, I imagine that for two straight years, he did nothing other than sit and write little snipey letters to people. I've got to assume at this point that basically his wife had like moved in with, a, with some Russian man. <laughs> 
Oh, no, <laughs> no. Going on I there? should say, by this point, his wife had gone home. <laughs> She'd gone back to Liverpool with their son, who he's barely seen. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's D- been... Do they drop out of history at this point? No, 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 no. Oh, right. Don't worry about that. But this is, you know, the two years in prison in Archangel, and then he was released, and now he spent two years in uh, prison in St. Petersburg. So four years of his son's life already, mm. just gone with Dad arguing the toss over something where he should have been able to see, yes, it's wrong, yes, it's corrupt. <laughs> Cut your losses. <laughs> but no, you're not going to win. It was decided by yeah. the Russians and the British after two years. Can we just declare him bankrupt as all his assets are in the UK and this will allow him to return home? And it was like, well, everyone saves face. The Russians look like they're being magnanimous because they're going, well, you're so poor, we're never going to get this money, but we will allow you to go home. And the British are like, he will stop writing those letters. (laughs) It's fine. So they went to John and they said, look, we're just going to have you declared bankrupt in a Russian court and then you can go back to your wife and teenage son by this stage, I assume. John refused. Of course he did. As he felt this damaged his honour. Because uh, because he's not bankrupt. John, John, do we think maybe John was autistic? Well, all I'm saying is his dad had a mental illness, uh, which appeared to be based around him being incredibly fastidious uh, to the point of obsession. And precise. Yeah, and John... He was a killer queen. John's John's <laughs> argument was... I don't want them to think I'm not paying the debt because I couldn't afford it. It is because I do not recognise that there is a debt to be paid. And that is very important to me. Not yeah. my wife and kid, not my business that I have not been able to, you know, attend to for four years. Not the fact that I would like to have a life. No, it's just this one technical point that I am willing to die for, apparently. <laughs> yeah. When you put it like that... Autism. <laughs> yeah. The, the problem with this was this had been dragging on for a while. And by the time he'd poo pooed this latest <laughs> sort of workaround, uh, Russia had sided with France and diplomatic relations with Britain were cut off. <laughs> so now he was an enemy of the state as well. Yeah. John was left to languish another full year in prison before his constant writing to the Russians, because now the British are cut off. That just means double the amount of correspondence going to the Russian authorities. Could they even read it? Don't they have to use the Cyrillic alphabet? <laughs> what is this nonsense, Vladimir? I don't know. <laughs> very annoying. I don't know. I mean, I, I assume it was just very sort of rude pictures that he was drawing by the end. Uh, Diagrams. <laughs> whatever it was, after a year, they finally just snapped, gave him some travel papers and told him to sod off. <laughs> just just go. I've had enough of you. He immediately went back to court. <laughs> no, no, to be fair this time, he did go back to England in 1809, which was five years after the whole affair had started, when if he just at the very top of it paid the obvious bribe that he had yeah. to pay, it wouldn't it wouldn't have cost him half as much. In a way, he's a pioneer because like, in England we do tend to get very... Um snobby about like, oh our policemen don't take bribes our society's not corrupt and it absolutely is it's just, it's just that we do it in a different way so it appears not corrupt so we can sort of lord it over people who do it in a more straightforward type of way <laughs> so john's in england finally 1809 Liverpool. and by this time spencer percival has amazingly risen to the position of prime minister no way really yeah he'd been picked by the king himself despite no one in the House of Commons considering him to be Prime Minister material. 
<laughs> what the boring Anglican who's obsessed with Napoleon fulfilling a prophecy. Whoever could have guessed. Well, they were so sure that he wouldn't be able to actually hold together a government that practically no one wanted to be in his cabinet. So few people were willing to, you know, accept an offer of a job when he made it that he was forced to hold the post of Chancellor of the Exchequer, Leader of the House of Commons and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster alongside Jesus. being Prime Minister. He also, because I believe the guy who was nominally in charge of the Home Office was his brother-in-law, he also ran the Home Office. That's ridiculous. Um, was he and, a Liberal or a Whig? Uh, Wait, he was a Conservative with a small C, really. That's what he was. He was a true Conservative. He wanted everything to stay the same at all times. Until Jesus came back. Yeah. And such was his work ethic and reputation, cleaner than clean, uh, that his colleagues, they couldn't really help but like him. They may not want to work for him, but they respected him. Even the Prince Regent, who everyone was sure would replace him um, as soon as he could, because King George went mad and Prince Regent was... um, Parliament basically said, well, we need to... Have a uh, king who's not mad. (laughs) Yeah, we need to uh, install the Prince Regent to work, you know, until King George gets better. So um, Spencer... He said, yeah, but I don't really think he's a good person to have in the helm. So what we'll do is we'll give him a year of very limited power. Um, And if his dad's not recovered after that, then at least he'll have had a year sort of bedding in. Hmm. So he put a lot of restrictions on the Prince Regent. Uh, And yeah, they're basically pretty sure that after he'd done this power play against Prince Regent, that Spencer's term would be limited to a year. Hmm. But... He proved to be so competent running the government almost single-handed that after the year, <laughs> Prince Regent had kind of warmed up to him and didn't well, fire him. Turns out what I actually like is drinking and having fun and orgies. <laughs> Spencer's nickname in the Commons was Little P. Not <laughs> oh, my God. Really? Yep. <laughs> he sounds like he's the world's first gangster PM. <laughs> Not yo, a, yo, Lil P in this his house. Prime Minister's questions, biatch. Not only because he was short and slightly built, he, he literally looked like a child. He looked like a child wearing a fake moustache and a top hat. He was life, glorious. Life ganged up on this dude so badly. <laughs> but also because he got things done in a quiet and efficient manner. So he was, he was never very showy with the things that he did, but stuff got done. Um, he sounds like he should have been a civil servant though I have to point out that at home he was known as Big P as can be attested (laughs) to the 12 kids he fathered before the age of 50 that that doesn't necessarily mean it's big it just means it's effective well that's what he is, he's effective (laughs) his wife I should point out he only only had sex 12 times as well (laughs) what's he like in bed? efficient (laughs) what does that mean? efficient (laughs) the job gets done (laughs) the job did get done with Spencer Percival (laughs) there's been better, there's been worse (laughs) also in keeping with his whiter than white reputation, Percival didn't appear to be in the job for personal gain he refused to take the salary of both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, despite doing both jobs, reasoning that he only actually needed one salary. He would <laughs> What a, like okay. My my in to like disliking him was basically that he's nobility and I think the whole system's just stupid and wrong and it always has been. But like he, there's there's something to be said for 
Like, like, it's not right, but my dad used to have a theory that the House of Lords was the best upper chamber possible because everything is inherently corrupt. But at least with the House of Lords, they've already got all of the money and lots of the power. So what's the point of being corrupt? Like, okay, you get the odd one that's just going to be obsessed with getting more. But most of them, like... His theory was that they'd sort of, after a while, kind of default to, well, we should probably try and do something a bit decent because what, what else are we here for? Mm. And he said that's about the best you can hope for in any government, which is very pessimistic and very my dad, if you know <clears> him. <throat> but like, <laughs> but, still, but, there's... but there's something to that. You know what I mean? yeah. He would also uh, personally engage in acts of charity such as funding the schooling for a child of a person who had written to him personally, suggesting a new way of structuring the Navy so it was mm. less reliant on conscripting people, so the press gang. Now, <laughs> I will point out that despite you know this, this being a reasonable suggestion, Spencer yeah. was never going to entertain it. Uh, <laughs> but it was a nice gesture. Yeah. <laughs> the, the guy said, look, you know, I, I, wor I worked in the Navy uh, and I'm worried about my son. He's young. He's not going to get an education. I'm worried he's going to get press ganged. Uh, mm. But what you could do is you could change the way that the Navy's modelled in this way and then no one would get press ganged. And Spencer went, no, no, no. That's the way the Navy works. However, I see mm. that you're worried about your son. So here is the money <laughs> that will make sure that he gets a proper education and he so doesn't... So he won't get press ganged. He won't get press ganged. So, you know, he's conservative... Uh, but but he actually follows the principles of conservatism, oh, yeah. unlike that actual demon in human skin, Jacob Rees Mock. I'm a Christian. I'm a conservative. I hate poor people. <laughs> square as, that. Square that fucking Christ. triangle, mate. Yeah, exactly. Spencer, importantly, probably his most important contribution to the world, or at least Europe. He was the lone champion for Wellington's continued presence with an army on the continent, one that was stuck <laughs> on the Iberian Peninsula. Despite warnings of rising national debt and increased yeah. poverty, he continued to send £5 million a year to support this seemingly doomed campaign. Good job he did as well, yeah. Jesus. Well, it resulted in him being seen as a villain in the eyes of the general public, yeah. and especially in the eyes of a man called John Billingham. Hang on, what? <laughs> Wellington would have eventually fought the Russians. Yes, but at this point, it was a never-ending—it was a never-ending yeah. war, uh, and we were wasting so much money on it. So, it's fascinating. You know what? It's genuinely fascinating to see from like a sort of street eye view because, like, you only ever learn about—I mean, you don't really learn about the Napoleonic Wars very much anyway in, in British um, standard education. You've got to go to university level for it, really, but. Um, like you only ever learn about it from the sort of retrospective view of it, and this is what Wellington did, and he was fantastic, and he fought in Spain and Iberia, and he, he, you know, gave Napoleon a bloody nose, and then he allied with the Prussians and finished him off, and you know, it's like, but you, you never see that, like it was, I didn't know at all that it was hideously unpopular. Yeah, just didn't and know. Spencer Percival, if it wasn't for his conviction in. The, the Bible prophecy. And I know it sounds absolutely <laughs> right, stupid, but right any other reasons. politician, yeah. any politician who cared what he was thought of yeah. uh, by the public or who, you know, wasn't so, so stubborn hmm. would have said, yeah, we're pulling Wellington out of there. It will be a short-term popular move. And everyone will say, well done you. Yes, let's hmm. just focus on our borders at home. Yeah, and make, as long as we're not invaded, it won't actually make a difference. He's not coming there, across yeah. the channel. But yeah. no, Spencer Percival was so convinced 
of what had to happen in order yeah. for Anglicanism to be spread across Europe that yeah. he was willing... Because at one point, Wellington wrote him a letter apologetically saying, look, it's going to cost more yeah. to keep us here. We're going to need an extra couple of million a year. And Spencer just went, yep. <laughs> Of course, of course you do. No worries. What, it is the what a baller. It is always <laughs> darkest before the light. Little I have P faith in you. Well. Yeah. Little P was not free to drop them big books. He wasn't, <laughs> but like I say, it made him quite unpopular. Yeah. And ha John, yeah, he's back in mm. England, but having... I just thought of something as well. If it wasn't for Spencer Percival, we wouldn't have had Sharp. He's a hero. End of discussion. <laughs> Finish the podcast. Over. <laughs> John, having returned from Russia, decided he was still owed justice. And he wasn't getting it from the Russians. So <laughs> right. he'd get it from the British government. Uh, what? And the British of... government hadn't done anything. Like, I mean, even by modern legal or moral codes, they hadn't done much wrong. He was going to get it from the British government. So instead of going to see his wife and now two children, <laughs> I have no idea how he fathered right. a second. He didn't. In he Liverpool. Didn't. Okay. He didn't. He, like, that, that's some Russian dude who moved back to Liverpool with his wife. <laughs> and now... Instead of going this, to see his wife, this is wife, John Junior and Vasily. <laughs> <laughs> okay, instead of going to see his wife, his one definite child and his second possible child in Liverpool, mm. he headed straight for London to begin demanding compensation from the politicians at the House of Commons. Okay, <laughs> John became a fixture in the lobby of Parliament because anyone could walk in there in those days. Oh my god! And even had a pamphlet printed that he would give out to anyone and everyone. Where does he get his money from? Well, it, I mean, his business was on its knees, and instead of going back and tending to it, he drew out what limited funds there were to print pamphlets uh, that gave a detailed account of exactly how he'd been wronged Do and you know, how he deserved compensation. This story didn't go the way I expected it to. I maybe I'm getting harsher as time goes on, but I really expected to like the poor, downtrodden business, like, you know, normal bloke, and, like, instantly rail against the... Um, the conservative. You know, the conservative noble is the symbol of everything that I think is wrong in the system. But at the end of the day, I suppose what Spencer Percival is, is evidence along the path to the best form of system is, is a dictator who's genuinely not in it for personal gain. That is the perfect thing. The problem is there's no way of setting that up. Oh, no, of course there isn't. You've just got to get randomly lucky. And it sounds like the UK got, like, almost random. Like, he was doing a lot of the right things that history... Okay, historically, they'll be viewed as the right things. He was doing them for batshit mental reasons. <laughs> but, like, but, he, but he had principles. He lived by them. He wasn't cruel. He wasn't, you know... No, he was... He definitely... And one of the things that was said about him was he would engage in debate. Uh, he would appear to listen. Hmm. And he would, you know, engage with the question. But at the end regardless of how well he'd done in the debate, he'd go ahead and do what he was going to do. He was okay. that kind of person. Yeah. That he, he, on the outside, he could kind of agree with, you know, that you were entitled to an opinion. It was just he already knew that you were wrong if you didn't agree with him. <laughs> he sounds like me. <laughs> anyway, back to someone who was much more sane and sensible. John. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Living in a lobby and printing pamphlets. Yeah. As the months passed, uh, with no progress, he began to become disheartened and his long-suffering <laughs> wife finally convinced him to return to Liverpool to see his sons, which he did, mm. reluctantly. <laughs> Your sons are great, but have you seen these pamphlets? <laughs> Over the next two years, Spencer continued to almost single-handedly run the wartime government, while John continued to obsess over the wrongs that had been done to him. An obsession that, considering the fate of his father, probably gave Mary cause for concern. <laughs> If she still cared, I can't imagine. I can't imagine why she would. 
especially when he decided to return to London. He told her it was a business trip. <laughs> uh, but really... Well, rubbing himself with pamphlets and sighing. <laughs> in reality, that was a cunning ruse. <laughs> it's as cunning as a fox. <laughs> he had decided, at the advice of his local MP, General Gascoigne, who I assume had borne the brunt of him for two years. General Gascoigne. <laughs> that it would be worthwhile petitioning the Foreign Office again. Wait, was his first name General, or was he called... Was he he was a General. general. Right. I can't Wait, remember. Was he one of the generals that Wellington had booted out the army for being a tit? To be honest, I have no idea if he was an actual general or if he was a self-styled general or if his dad had been you, a military you do that? man. Are you allowed to do that? I think you are in Liverpool. You can go <laughs> General Gascoigne. That's, I, I, feel, I feel like that's slightly too far. <laughs> well, I, let's, let's say he was probably a general at some point <laughs> and he'd retired and decided, I want to be an MP. And Liverpool mm. was having a by-election. Uh, but he got so sick of John that John had been going, well, do you, do you think they'd listen to me now? Do you think this evidence <laughs> I've compiled would, would help? And he's, evidence. Yeah, like, Rantings yes. of a lunatic. All of those. Take those new scribbles down to London, away from me, and I'm sure that <laughs> this time... Do you know what? You should you walk there <laughs> like Jesus would have. <laughs> uh, Unfortunately, after being rejected one more time from the Foreign Office and asking what he should do, a civil servant who didn't have the patience of a General Gascoigne told him he should, and this is a direct quote, just take whatever measures you feel proper. <laughs> you said that to an autistic man. It seems that John took this as permission to take the justice he felt he had been denied. <laughs> he, went, Amazing. he went off and immediately bought two pistols and began practising... Who keeps giving this man money? Where does he get it from? <laughs> Too many drunk people giving away coins to charity cases. <laughs> like, like that's not normally something I'm against. But like, this man should not have had money. He should have. He should have been like in a system without a, a in a world without a, a, like any kind of medical system to take care of him. He needed to be forced to go home. <laughs> well, I, I, London had both bedlam. And St. Luke's at this point, you know. Yeah, I don't think either of them would have helped him either. <laughs> no, but they, he wouldn't have pistols, no, which he but... began practising with obsessively. <laughs> of course he began obsessively practising. And on his them. way home from the, from the pistol range, hmm. uh, he stopped off at a tailor and said, I need you to put a secret pocket in my coat. And when he <laughs> said, well, how big do you want this pocket? He said, big enough for two pistols. Yeah. John produced a gun and went, about this big. <laughs> but yay big. He also, at this time, started spending a lot less time in the lobby of the House of Commons and a lot more time in the public gallery, asking the journalists who were there recording the events of the day to point out the members of the cabinet. He especially <laughs> made sure to Spencer. memorise... And who's the Duchy of the Language? Chancellor of the Duchy of the That'd be Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the Home Office? Well, he's over there, but really, I mean, it's Spencer. And so like that guy's in big, but also oh, yeah. little. Yeah. He was he was sure to memorise the childlike appearance of Spencer Percival, because he had a plan. Was his plan to kidnap Spencer Percival and raise him as his own son? I wish it was. <laughs> I can guess where this is going, but the day John Bellingham chose to get his justice was May eleventh, eighteen twelve. Oh, it's the day from the start. Yeah, it all comes together. Oh, it's like you've written a script. I've been doing this for a year now. 
<laughs> Unfortunately for John, this day, yeah. his day, D-Day, although he didn't understand the no. reference. <laughs> I should call it D-Day. It feels momentous. Uh, yeah. Actually, they took it from um, John John Bellingham's diary. That's where Winston Churchill got the idea from. <laughs> no, considering how important this date was to him, yeah. he was late. He, no, really. Yeah, uh, the autistic, been, obsessive man was late for his own murder day. Uh, he arrived at the lobby at five pm, despite the committee on French trade embargoes. I mean, how perfect is that? Yeah, why would you need a committee? Well, <laughs> Let's all get together and talk about how bad it is. Yeah. Well, no. Basically, what happened is some MP said we need to talk, Spencer, about the fact that you are doing nothing to improve our trading situation and you're just sending money to Wellington. So we want to have a special debate on the fact that we really need our traders to be able to trade if you want to keep raising taxes. I love the idea that Spencer will sat there and went, yes, 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 Jesus will sort it all out when he comes back. Don't worry, chaps. Walked off. Well, no, he agreed He agreed that he would, he would have this. He'd probably sit there, listen to it all and go, Yes, I hear your concerns. We shall continue as we're doing. <laughs> they are indeed concerns. Good night. <laughs> this this committee on French trade embargo, embargoes, it was scheduled to begin at 4.30. Hmm. So when John turned up at 5pm, it's a bit late to intercept people getting into the house. They're already in there and having a debate on embargoes and French, <laughs> French people. <laughs> But uh, even more unfortunately, as it turns out, especially for Spencer Percival, yeah. he was later uh, and he didn't arrive at the lobby until 5.15pm. <clears throat> oh, no. That doesn't sound like Spencer. He's, he seems like a pumpkin. He was kind of hard at work at 10 Downing Street. And mm. they actually started the um, committee and one of the MPs pointed out, well, he's not even here. He doesn't have respect for us. And they sent a clerk to go and find him. And he was walking, he was walking from Downing Street. And apparently when the clerk said, they're a bit miffed that you're not already there. He checked his watch, went, oop, and did a little sort of hop, skip, run. And then (laughs) realised that he was the Prime Minister of the goddamn United (laughs) Kingdom and went, no, I shall just walk briskly. Kind of slowed down again. What decorum. Can you imagine what would happen nowadays if, if a clerk got sent to get Boris? First of all, Boris wouldn't be on his way. Secondly, when he got into Downing Street, he'd see something he could never unsee. (laughs) And have to go to trauma therapy. Anyway, the the point of it is, Spencer turned up 15 minutes after John Bellingham had been sat in a corner of the lobby, muttering to himself. (laughs) Fondling his secret pistol pocket. (laughs) Fondling his pockets. And rubbing pamphlets on his face. <laughs> <laughs> the words. They're all true and delicious. <laughs> Morally, I'm right. <laughs> Mentally degraded. <laughs> well, seeing the Prime Minister making his way across the lobby to the House of Commons, John Bellingham rose from his seat and calmly walked to block his path. Mm-hmm. Spencer Percival apologised. Uh, and asked if he wouldn't mind moving aside. <laughs> well, what manners, to be honest? Like, you know, there's there's clearly clearly a lot of bad, like his stubbornness caused a horrendous amount of pain. But, you know, personally, on a personal level, there's a lot that's okay about Spencer Percival. Uh, yeah, you're you're about to be using that in the uh, in the past tense. 
because um, a single gunshot was heard. And Spencer Percival exclaimed, rather accurately as it turned out, I am murdered! Before slumping face first to the floor. At least he got some, like... (laughs) How appropriate were his last words? Were your last words inspirational? No, they were functional. (laughs) I was giving everyone everyone in the vicinity. Exactly what happened, and then I died. (laughs) John could easily have escaped in the instantaneous chaos. However, he chose to return to his seat... And he sat there calmly to watch the scene unfold. Instantaneous Chaos is a great name for an album, by the way. Well, we'll we'll get to that. That's <laughs> that's you know the next pandemic. Rather than a podcast, we'll reform the band. It'd be great. Assuming the other two members are alive, I don't know. Well, I hope Jack is because he had three kids. So. Oh yeah, it'd be sad if he wasn't. I, don't get me wrong. I hope Becky is as well. I just feel like it'd be less of a tragedy. For somebody who doesn't have kids. We don't know that Becky doesn't have kids. That's a fair point. Mm. We really need to check on those guys. Um, (laughs) If you're out there, Becky, and listening to this podcast, I'm really sorry if I insinuated that your life was not important. I miss you. I hope you're okay. Yeah. (laughs) I hope you're still playing the bass. We're going to need you. At the very least that your career at that cake factory worked out. Or if it didn't, that you found something better. Amazingly, the MPs in the House of Commons who've been debating... French, you know, trade stuff. They immediately started toward the sound of the gunshot. Oh my god, bold MPs! Yes, we're not ready to go back to that. The world, the modern UK, couldn't survive MPs who who could like do things. (laughs) Well, Spencer Percival was taken to the speaker's quarters, where he was pronounced dead a few minutes later, having never regained consciousness. Where was he shot, poor bugger? Well, you know. They, they were both fastidious men with attention to detail, so directly through the heart. Wow. At point-blank range. Yeah. With a, with a musket ball, so that was a yeah. bit oh, like yeah. explosively his, his, damaging. His little tiny prepubescent pigeon chest was completely caved in. Yeah. You know, um, when they finally figured out what had happened, because it took them a while, they turned <laughs> to see John, who still, still sat, sat there, there calmly. <laughs> and when he realised that they finally figured it out, he just said... I wanted redress for my grievances. He allowed the pistols he was carrying to be taken off him and didn't resist when the MPs began leading him towards the House of Commons with the idea to conduct an immediate trial. Because technically, it's also a court of law. Really? Because laws are decided there. You can take someone to the bar at the House of Commons if you wanted to. It's never been done. Um Eventually, eventually, I don't, feel, I don't feel like that should be allowed. That that seems wrong to me. Well, but, but a lot okay. of the MPs <laughs> felt the same way because eventually it was decided mm, we probably shouldn't do a kangaroo court trial kind of thing. Send him the old Bailey. Come yeah. on. That's well, they decided <laughs> not to the old Bailey, but to be oh. taken to the prison room. There's a prison room. Yes, it's located at the bottom of the Queen Elizabeth Tower. Isn't so, that where the clock is? Yep, that's where Big Ben sits. The oh. big bell at the top. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, he was put in the prison room, and it's quite good that they had one, really. I can't um, believe there's a prison in the House of Commons. Yeah, and the MPs then tried to decide what to do next. They were terrified, understandably, that the murder of the Prime Minister was part of an attempted revolution, which was entirely possible as the French had recently been attempting to land troops in Ireland, and the cost of the ongoing war was placing the normal citizens of Britain in ever more dire circumstances. Jesus. As a result, the first thing they did was to send word to the Prince Regent 
uh, to probably, probably the country immediately. You'll make get it a better the place. fuck out of London. <laughs> Go to Brighton. And Go your to your weird, party weird palace. Party <laughs> palace. Uh, and they inform the troops stationed in and around London to be on high alert. Just, we're not going to tell you why yet. We don't think you're ready for that, but shit may kick off. Britain. This is what the, the Tories are always the same. Has anything happened? It's the signs of a communist plot. <laughs> But, I mean, the Prime Minister's just been shot. Uh, unfortunately for them, because we were trying to keep it quiet... Yeah, but the Prime Minister's been shot by a lunatic, a clear lunatic. <laughs> well, to, to us, I've given you his backstory, and the MPs knew oh, that. Right, right, right. You, you mean the bloke who's calmly sat there going, I wanted to address my grievances, and he's trying to show them all pamphlets. It's not a lunatic. <laughs> Come on. How, I, thick are these, how thick are these MPs? Well, they're just overly concerned. Also, they are terrified because for the last four years, they haven't had to do anything in governing. They've just sat in a room while Spencer Percival has done everything. Yeah. They're now without a leader, and not just without a prime minister. They're without prime minister, chancellor of the exchequer, head of the home office, you know, head of the commons. They've lost (laughs) every kind of leader that they could have. 400 MPs just sat there going, ah. He said, right, we've sent word to the Prince Regent. We've we've let the army know that there may be trouble. But Does anyone never... else remember what we're supposed to do here? Right. But the important thing now is that we keep it quiet, lads. We don't want anyone else to know he's dead yet. Because what? That, that could cause trouble. As far as everyone else in Britain's concerned, everything's fine. And we want to keep it that way as long as possible. Unfortunately for them, the murder had been witnessed by journalists who were not going to sit on a story that huge. The information (laughs) made it into some of the late editions, and by evening, it was widely known. Bearing in mind this happened at quarter past five, so within a couple of hours, it was widely known that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, the Empire, Mm. had been assassinated. Londoners responded. Riot. Celebrating on the streets and gathering around the Palace of Westminster, cheering and shouting oh. revolutionary revolutionary slogans. Oh God! Okay. So My favourite of which, mm. and this was apparently something you 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 toast this, so you'd have a drink and you'd say this mm. to the last king strangled by the guts of the last priest, which is snappy. Yeah. <laughs> I quite like that one. Um, yeah, yeah, I like. Mean, I get behind the sentiment. I don't know where all this revolutionary zeal went in England. Like we seem to have been quite up for it at various points in history. It just never seemed to get going. Ah, we we had we had the glorious revolution, which was no revolution count. at all, and that it seemed count. to save people. It's like, oh, we had a revolution. It was lovely. <laughs> what happened? Well, we replaced that rich guy with that rich guy, and literally nothing changed. Good enough. <laughs> and the French just looked at us and went, "What? <laughs> That's not a revolution." With this is bullshit. <laughs> What do you think you're fucking, you're a disgrace? <laughs> now, if the MPs were worried that a revolution was happening, the good people of London completely validated that concern because drums were beating, bonfires were quickly erected. Uh, bells from all the churches started ringing. Um, it was a party atmosphere is what I'm saying. Spencer <laughs> Percival had died and everybody was up for a good laugh. John Bellingham would not have been surprised by the cheering he could hear. He was perfectly convinced that when he was tried by 12 of his peers, which was what he was entitled to as a British citizen, he would be found not guilty of murder. And he told the MPs thusly. (laughs) 
How did they not twig that he was just one maniac? <laughs> well, I think they were starting to suspect that he was one maniac, but it's like either, you know, on the... It doesn't really matter when there's a crowd chanting revolutionary slogans outside. <laughs> and especially on the off chance, on the minuscule potential that he wasn't, and he was just playing a part really well. Yeah. You know, that they, they couldn't take that risk because it was all of the heads, basically. Yeah. Um, he was actually, though, almost immediately released. What? <laughs> because the first time they tried to transport him from Westminster to Newgate, the mob of people outside rushed to the carriage and tried to free their new hero. Ah, the London mob. The MPs, they wisely then waited until they had back up from the army before they tried to get him there again. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, my granddad always used to, like, literally, this is something that happened, he used to warn me about mobs. He said... He said, the reason, I don't, the reason that you should always be scared of mobs is because I was in a mob when I was eight years old, just before World War II, and I was running around in circles with all of my school chums shouting, we want war, we want war. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and that proves that mobs don't know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> well, this mob was shouting for a, a revolution that wasn't going to occur. Mm, talking um, about a revolution. Sorry, carry on. Very loudly. And with bonfires. Um, <laughs> John Bellingham, he did eventually get to Newgate, but he didn't spend much time there. His trial was set for May 15th, only four days after the assassination. And not enough time for even the best defence lawyer of the day, Mr Peter Alley, to really build a case. Mm. He was not helped by John Bellingham's unshakable conviction that his actions, although regrettable, and he did say that he regretted it, had been entirely justified and necessary. He was unshakably polite to the jailers, and every action he took appeared to indicate that he fully expected to be found innocent and allowed to return home on the 15th. This included refusing to write to his long-suffering wife until he could tell her he was coming home. It's okay. She was, she was with child number two's father. She was probably fine. Based on this and the fact that he couldn't call witnesses, all Ali could really do was try and prove that John was insane. He even went mm. so far as to have John examined by one of the Munros of Bedlam. It was Thomas Munro in this instance. Mm. But unsurprisingly, for someone who would do anything for a bit of money, Thomas found him to be sane. <laughs> in retrospect, it seems clear that John was experiencing a powerful delusion and appeared to honestly not believe that he had acted in a criminal fashion. Yeah. But the MPs kind of wanted to quash any revolutionary ideas, and for that to happen... They needed to make a clear example of John Bellingham. Probably could have still hung, drawn and quartered him, couldn't they? No, this That's was... got to be treason murdering a prime minister. This was just after it had been abolished. Oh, really? No, no, I no, mean... this wouldn't be after. Because um, the last hang, drawing and quartering we covered was William Davidson, and that was post-Peter Lowe, so it was post the end of oh, uh, the yeah. war. So, yeah, he... Fairly could have been, although technically treason was only for imagining the death of the king. And he <laughs> he was only yeah, prime minister. I remember that bit, yeah. Fuck, yeah. fuck him, he's only prime minister. That's nothing. Uh, on the day of his trial, though, so many people wanted a chance to get a seat in the Old Bailey that the doorkeepers were able to raise their admission price to three guineas, which is around 250 quid. So everyone wanted to, yeah. So when people say, you know, that um, concert tickets are getting a bit extortionate, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's been that way since since at least the Georgian era. You want to get mm. into the big show, you're going to be paying the big bucks. 
Even before he pled not guilty, John Bellingham reasonably pointed out that he'd only been told of his trial two days before, that all the documents he needed to help establish his case had been taken by the Crown uh, at the point which he was arrested because, of course, he kept all of the documents on his person at all times. You know, everything relating to his, mm. his injustice in Russia, he, he kept with him in his coat. So he had two secret pockets. One had the gun and the other had all of the documentation that he'd ever amassed on the reasons that he needed compensation. <laughs> How did he not get declared insane mm. at that point? He turns, well, up to, turns up to court with all these... Anyway. Well, he didn't have them. They had them. It's like, give me my documents back. Yeah, exactly. Like, Sorry, sorry, sorry. What about, what about, he turns up to court begging for his magic documents that will absolve him because they have the truth written down in them. Mm. Come on. But more reasonably, he pointed out that any witnesses he wanted to call had not been able to make it from Liverpool in the short time frame, and that his prosecutors were also witnesses for the prosecution. <laughs> he's not He's not really grasped this whole, like, everything is corrupt eternally and forever non thing yet, has he? Which is... Uh... The, the sad thing about this is, if he had met Spencer Percival at the time Spencer Percival desperately needed a home secretary, hmm. he'd have been great. He's fastidious. He's a stickler for the rules. This was the man. If they'd he have wants met, everything to be fair and yeah, right. <laughs> if, he'd have, if they'd have met in different circumstances, they would probably have gotten on like a house on fire. That is actually a tragedy. It's a very good point and, and quite funny. It's not often you can say that. Like normally, I mean, this this is goes down as a political assassination, doesn't it? But normally, like political assassinations arise out of like fundamentally opposing politics. Like you've got. I don't know, Martin Luther King and that dude, the FBI paid to kill Martin Luther King because he was, I believe that, I know it's a conspiracy theory, but I believe that. Or Lee Harvey Oswald and JFK. So it's either insanity or it's... Oh, Lee Harvey Oswald was a communist. Let's not forget that. Yeah, there's, yeah, but he was also nuts. But oh, it's a either, bit. It's either insanity or fundamentally opposed politics that rise to a point where they, they can, you know, there's, there's a total break or, or in the minds of at least one person a total breakdown in the possibility of any reconciliation or peaceful coexistence. But this is just like a tragedy of a mentally ill person pushed beyond their limit. (laughs) He's still insisting, if he'd have just paid me the compensation. Um, But the problem was... The only one who was like 40 quid or whatever it was back in the The, day. (laughs) The only defence that was being presented for him was insanity. And he stood up and said, well, I've not been able to get my witnesses here and you have my documents. So he's being incredibly reasonable. Right. Which undermined the insanity plea. And further undermined... His lawyer's just got his head in his hands. uh, (laughs) Because he insisted that he'd felt no personal malice towards Spencer Percival, but it killed him only because he was currently the head of the government. Right, Um, which made him sound like a massive revolutionary. He's like, well, I'm sorry, I had... I didn't... Yes, you're telling me Spencer Percival was a lovely person, gave to charity, that's fantastic. I'm really sorry for his wife and his 12 children, who now are without a father, but you see, he represents the government that denied me justice. So Mm. I had to make my feelings clear. And what clearer way? You're listening to me now. You didn't listen to me a couple of days ago when I came with my pamphlet. But look, look at all of these people who are paying to listen to me now. Yeah. It was, of course, a, a foregone conclusion. Um, with the judge, Sir James Mansfield, even going so far as to practically tell the jury that they needed to pass a guilty verdict, stating in open court 
I know of no reason to cause even a doubt as to the guilt of this man. Which is quite a leading statement for a judge to make. <laughs> a modern lawyer could drive a fucking barge through that. <laughs> and also, I will point out that anyone who does not return a guilty verdict will be considered a treasonous revolutionary. <laughs> and I will have you whipped. <laughs> and that's before the trial. <laughs> Judges, not even once. He, he then, this Sir James Mansfield, having told them that he knows of no reason that they shouldn't find this man guilty. Mm. He took the time to go on a bit of a, a bit of a freeform speech <laughs> about how great a man Spencer Percival was. <laughs> At one point, he was openly weeping in court as he reminisced about his good friend Spencer. Had he ever met him before? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, okay. Uh, well, Spencer had been a lawyer. He'd been up in front of him many right, times. Fair enough. Okay. Um, although, to be fair to him. He did after he cried just at the memory of what a great and honourable man Spencer Percival was, tell the jury that uh, they shouldn't allow his emotion to impact their decision. <laughs> just his words. Not the emotion behind them, just the words. <laughs> oh. Even when the sentence of death was passed at 6pm, John Bellingham he didn't appear to be phased. He was led from the courtroom and shortly afterwards... The witnesses he had requested to attend from Liverpool arrived. <laughs> right. <laughs> and were turned around, put back on the carriage, and told to leave. We're, we're done with that crap now. <laughs> we're putting this all behind us and we're moving on. Yeah, yeah, you, you're too late. <laughs> Justice, it's not for you. <laughs> now back to the north. <laughs> Traditionally... There are supposed to be three clear Sundays between the sentence of death and the execution in order to give um, the condemned person long enough to make their peace with God. Mm. John Bellingham was given three days. Mm. He was to be hung in public outside of Newgate only (laughs) one week after he had murdered Spencer Percival. So the entire thing taken a week. While he awaited his sentence in the condemned cells, the funeral procession passed nearby taking Spencer Percival to his final resting place of St Luke's Church in Charlton. His fellow MPs had already voted to provide his wife and many, many children with a settlement of over £50,000 from the public purse. Jesus Christ. Which is over £3 million in today's money. Mm. Bear in mind there was a war on. Yeah. Um, Wow. (laughs) Amazingly... There was also a public collection for John Bellingham's family, which reportedly made them richer than they would ever have been before. John's soon-to-be widow Mary would remarry within a year. Possibly to the father of her second child. Yeah. Nice. Good for them, I guess. On the morning of the execution, 5,000 troops were posted to keep order as tens of thousands of people jostled for a position to see John Bellingham meet his end. All reports agree that he was at all times polite and compliant with the request of the executioner. And How did they kill him? Hang him? Just a straight hanging. Yeah. Uh, he did not appear to be afraid of what was happening. He did ask if he could be hung without wearing the hood. Ugh. No. Uh, however, this request was denied. After all, there were children present. Yeah, do want an eyeball popping out or anything. When the trap door opened on the seventh stroke of eight o'clock, it was not met with cheers but with an eerie silence. Hmm. The body hung for over an hour 
before being taken to St. Bart's Hospital, where it was dissected before a packed anatomical theatre. And here you can see the traitor organ. (laughs) John Bellingham's skull, should you wish to see it, resides in the pathology museum to this day. I suppose we've only ever had one assassination. Have we had any other assassinations in British political history? Well, Lord Liverpool became Prime Minister on June 8th and only ten days into the job found himself at war with America. (laughs) (laughs) Who were just massive Spencer Percival fans. It was like, right, no Spencer, no party. (laughs) Immediately wished Spencer was back. (laughs) Oh, no. France, America... Oh, they are the oldest. They are each other's oldest allies. Well, not Francis, but American. You know what I mean? Oh, you know, Lafayette. Gotta love him. Is he the one from that movie that Mel Gibson was in? Uh, Yeah, he's the he's the French general that went over there and helped. He's the one. I mean, I think there's Lafayette Square and Lafayette Road. You'll see it all over America. They really love him. So Lord Liverpool took over, the American War started, and eventually both John Bellingham and Spencer Percival were almost forgotten by the British public at large. Which yeah, it's is true. incredible. You'd, th- you'd, you'd think we'd know more about it. Assassinations are quite exciting, you know. Well, especially considering this is, to this date, of course, got to put yeah. that out there, the only <laughs> time a British Prime Minister has ever been <laughs> assassinated. Did. Hint, hint, listeners. <laughs> I'm hinting nothing. I'm just saying that in our entire history, only one prime minister has ever been assassinated. It's possibly the one who uh, did he least? No, he didn't least deserve it. Like, there have been less offensive prime ministers. Yeah. He definitely wasn't an out-and-out tyrant. He was no, but he was. He was a massive arsehole. Like you know, at a certain point, it should be incumbent upon the leader of a country to notice that all of his policies are making the general population dirt poor and hungry. But as part of that hard-nosed policy, yeah. the you know Napoleonic Wars ended without Napoleon becoming emperor of all Europe. and Which is what he definitely yeah, would have done. The course of yeah. history. You know, Swung towards blighty. Yeah, and Spencer never got to see that, but mm. you, it's one of those things. You can never know what your legacy is going to be, and Spencer Percival's... Seems to have been. Britain's got this really weird knack of like getting itself into horribly tricky spots, and then out of nowhere, some lunatic pops up and goes, "I can sort that." What do you need? Six men and a jar of peanut butter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then something like, "Oh, what happened?" Well, we were losing very badly, and then some lunatic invented um, um, uh, ranger patrols, and then we suddenly won the war. <laughs> what? What do you mean? Well, yeah, we just sent out 30 men dressed in green and they started murdering everyone. It was amazing. <laughs> well, it's the old thing of um, you always start the next war fighting the old war. Yeah. And it's who adapts better to Fastest, the new. Yeah. yeah. And it, we just had a knack of being able to adapt quicker for the longest time. <laughs> Those damn continentals and their rigid ways of thinking. <laughs> so would you would you like to hear about the sources I used because I read two very long books for this. I would like to hear them because it's important that sources get recognition. I learned that at university. So the Didn't fir- learn much else. but The first one I, I read was The Substance of a Conversation with John Bellingham, the assassin of the late Right Honourable Spencer Percival on Sunday, May 17th, 1812 by Daniel Wilson, who was the minister of St John's Chapel and actually met with um, John Bellingham while he was in the condemned cell. Ostensibly, it was to try and save his soul, but it seems like it was mainly to get source for this pamphlet, uh, source material, because 
the, the entire thing is this devil of a man. And he seemed very, very preoccupied with the fact that John Bellingham appeared to be an atheist. My God. I know. And that was that was pretty much... He kept coming back to the fact. And although he said that he laid his soul in front of God, I didn't believe him. And he seemed he seemed to think that was enough to say that he, he expected to be forgiven. I'm going to be honest, like, between them, John Bellingham and Spencer Percival haven't managed to change my overall opinion of Georgian Britain, which is that it was full of gin and arseholes. <laughs> and gin in arseholes if you went to the right establishment. I think any establishment was the right establishment. <laughs> the second book I read, The Assassination of the Prime Minister, John Bellingham and the Murder of Spencer Percival, by David C. Hanrahan, which is I hope there was I hope there was a colon between that because otherwise it sounds like John Bellingham was the prime minister. No, the there was there was a the colon prime minister John Bellingham. There was a semicolon there. Oh, um, semicolon. Yeah, um, that's it's quite a by the numbers <laughs> semi. It's quite a by the numbers account of sort of like the situation. Yeah. Um, very very factual. If you want a bit more juice on the bone, hmm. if you want a bit more going on there, and you um, say it's by Peter O'Hanrahanrahan. David C. Hanrahan, 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 Did he ever lose the news? I. Do, do, do you understand the reference? I, mean? I don't understand the reference. It's the day to day where Peter O'Hanrahan, Hanrahan loses the news and Ted Maul tells him to go and find the news and he can't go back on the show until he's found it. <laughs> God, the day to day was good. But yeah, it's, it's. If you want to just get the facts out of it, yeah, what that's happened, the book. when happened, that's the one. If you want a bit more opinion if you want a bit more political intrigue if you if want you a bit more colour um i go with why spencer percival had to die the assassination <laughs> of a british prime minister by andrew linklater and that's mm. that's that's the one that i i liked the most it was a bit more juicy <laughs> it gave you a bit of the author's own opinion on what people might have been thinking or feeling but it really you know it gave you a bit more i like mm. that one better but they're both good reads and they're both mm. Definitely available for free on archive.org. Oh, you, so. you, there were three sources. Yeah, there were. There were two you books see. and a pamphlet. Right, right, Because right. the Georgians... The pamphlet. ...love nothing yeah. more than a fucking pamphlet. There's well, a pamphlet for expensive. everything. Binding's expensive. It is expensive, but you know what? If you've got something to say, you can present it properly. <laughs> if it's worth my reading, it's worth you taking the effort to bind that bastard. Pay the mm. extra. Come on. I, know, I feel like Georgian society was more unrestrained capitalism. So, you know. so that is it. It's not only the end of this episode. It is the end of our first year of recording this podcast. 52 weekly episodes. Oh. Never missed one. You've done really well, mate. You should be proud of yourself. We we should be proud of ourselves. Uh, all I do is sit here and rabbit on with you. You do all the writing and the editing. Make the theme tune, sing the theme tune. I literally made the theme soon and sung the theme tune. For for the second year, we're going with um, the backing of Rule Britannia. Oh my God, really? Yep. It's it's only only the chorus, obviously. Is it it on the ukulele? Yeah, (laughs) of course course it's on the ukulele. I'm I'm happier that it's on the ukulele. I I was thinking you might go on a bit jingoistic. No, it's a 13-second Rule Britannia. Well, I just thought, what songs immediately... I've already done Greensleeves for year one. (laughs) I mean, number. If we get to year three, it's probably going to be something like Jerusalem. Hmm. I was thinking more like, please, please, let me get what I want at the Spits. Oh, that's yeah, but you know, or rocking the Casbah. Ooh, we could go a bit more punk. We could do Anarchy in the UK or something. 
I think I, th- I think you know any of the major Clash or um, Sex Pistols songs are recognisably British. Yeah, we'll go you with know, that. No, no, nobody's thinking that any of those people came from anywhere but London. <laughs> and if we, get, if we get to year four, it's a big if. We're doing wham. <laughs> yes. <laughs>